Hello, and welcome to the Healed Podcast, the place where we can talk about all things food, body, and mind from an anti-diet and weight-inclusive lens. My name is Marie-Pierre, or you can call me Marie, and I am your host. I'm a registered dietitian with a background in psychology, and I specialize in food relationship and body image. And I am the founder and CEO of The Balance Practice, a treatment center for eating disorder and disordered eating. Every week on the podcast, you will hear from myself, the team at The Balance Practice, and other providers who have dedicated their careers in supporting folks to have better relationship with food and their bodies. On this podcast, we aim to provide a safe space to have these deep and juicy conversations regarding eating disorder, disordered eating recovery, health, relationship, body image, and honestly, anything we believe will support you in living your big, beautiful life. We believe in the power of healing, and hopefully this podcast will be a great addition to your toolbox in your healing journey. Thank you for tuning in today, and let's get to the podcast. Hello, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. I hope that we are doing good in this chilly November. Today, I'm super pumped about this podcast episode. We are talking about the LGBTQ plus community and the intersection with eating disorders. It's going to be such a great conversation. And before I introduce our guest today, I do want to let you know about our upcoming workshop at The Bounce Practice that is going to be talking about LGBTQ plus care in eating disorder recovery. This workshop will be facilitated by Manik Robinson, who is a registered psychotherapist here at The Balance Practice, and is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this topic. I'm super excited to be able to share more about this. It's such an important piece of the puzzle, because as you'll learn today, the LGBTQ plus community are, have a higher risk of developing eating disorders. Therefore, awareness around this is so, so important. So if you are interested in joining this workshop, if you're someone with an ED, maybe part of the LGBTQ community, a loved one, or even a healthcare provider, I think you can get so much value from this workshop. So you can go to www.thebalancepractice.com forward slash LC workshop to sign up for this workshop. Now today we are going to be introducing this conversation and I'm super excited that we have Quinn Hazley with us today. So Quinn is a non-binary queer and neuro divergent eating disorder dietitian. She started working in an eating disorder field about three years ago as a dietitian. She's done inpatient, outpatient, and now she is in her own private practice. So they now work full-time for themselves at Practice Eros Nutrition, primarily focusing on work with the LGBTQ plus and neurodivergent folks after seeing a need for really more affirming treatment spaces run by clinicians who have lived experience. And we've been talking a lot about this on the podcast that evidence base is so great and is needed and it's lacking. And oftentimes what is lacking is the diversity of folks that are included in the evidence-based methods, right? So I really do believe that lived experience is so needed in this realm as well. So Quinn is passionate about breaking the cookie cutter and eating treatment model and bringing a social justice lens into eating disorder recovery, which 
which is kind of our vibe here at The Balance Practice. So we're really pumped about it. And they believe in the power of community care, emphasizing lived experience in support spaces and increases access to anti-carceral eating disorder treatment. I'm telling you guys, like this episode was a vibe. (laughs) It was so good. And I feel so fortunate to have the opportunity to connect with Quinn on the podcast. So without further ado, my friends, let's get to the episode and let's meet Quinn. Hey, Quinn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am so excited that you're here. I'm so excited that I get to meet you today and have this conversation with you. Yes, it's nice to actually finally meet you. <laughs> Put a face to the name. Yeah, I know. I know. I like love podcasts for that because I'm like, I just get to meet really cool people and have like really cool conversations. And here we are. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. Um, but before we get into today's topic, I'd love for you to tell our listeners where what your origin story is. So what got you to do the work that you do today? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I first started, so I went to undergrad for a completely different field. I actually studied philosophy and religious studies when I was in my undergrad. So interesting. Different. Yeah. Yes. Interesting plot um, twist there. I know. Slight shift. So I did that for school. And then I ended up working in city government for about three years before deciding to go back to school. And I had always been interested in nutrition. And I will say that I have recovered from my own eating disorder. So that was something that definitely played into one me like making the decision to study nutrition and mm-hmm. played a r- big role in deciding to go into the eating disorder field. So I went back to school and got an associate's in nutrition to get all of the you know science prereqs that I had none of from studying philosophy. And then I went to NYU and did my master's there. And I also did my dietetic internship there as well. And while I was at NYU, I took a class that was taught by Melanie Rogers, who's the CEO and founder of Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center in Manhattan. I was fascinated. The class was really amazing. So I actually asked her if I could do one of my rotations in my internship at Balance and ended up interning there for a little while. Loved it, loved the people there. And so I ended up getting hired by them after I graduated, which was great. It was very easy to go from like internship directly into working there. And so I worked there for a while and then eventually decided to start my own private practice, which is where I currently work. It's called Practice Eris Nutrition. And I've had my private practice now for like a year and a half. And I've been doing that and I love it. I love working in outpatient. I love working at my private practice. It's been a great transition. Oh, I love that so, so much. And I resonate so much of you, like your full journey. Like I started in something like fully different too, like in psychology and then eating disorder. And I was like, nutrition, let me go back to school to learn more about food. Yes. It's yeah, alarming it's, how often oh, that happens. It's oh my God. Really I re- interesting. I yeah. remember sitting in my first like intro to nutrition class and like the prof was like, okay, everybody like look around you. And we're like, what? is happening and she's like 50% of you guys here have an eating disorder have had an eating yep. disorder or will have an eating disorder and I'm like all right and I was like it's, fuck I'm one of them like, don't roll my cover. Yeah. 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 I think I recently saw a study and I think it had it was either published by or partially done with um, weight inclusive nutrition and dietetics and 
the stat that they had from it was I think like 89% of people who are studying nutrition have orthorexia or have had orthorexia. And I was like, that is sadly not surprising to me, but it's, it's just a thing that you really have to deal with in the nutrition field is a lot of people are there because of disordered eating. Yeah. Well, and I mean, some of those fucking courses also like teach you how to be orthorexic. Like what, what the hell? Like some of the courses I go back to, I'm like, how, how did they teach us this? Like, this is wild. Like, this is really insane. Yeah. Totally. But here you are today. Today now you're helping people recover from their eating disorder in your own private practice. Like how fucking cool that you use your experience to now help others. Like that's really fucking awesome. No, I'm I'm very lucky to have the career that I have because it's something I'm super passionate about. Yeah, I love that so so much. So today we wanted to talk a little bit more about eating disorder in the LGBTQ plus community. And I'd love us to just talk a little bit more like we'll start like macro and just kind of understand like like how does like food and body image maybe impacting that population differently? Yeah, which is a really good question. It's like um, a very broad know, question. Yes, it's a super <laughs> broad question, but it's a great question. I mean, I think one thing that we're learning more, so there's really not a ton of research on this, but from the research that we have is that people in the LGBTQ community tend to be at higher risk for developing an eating disorder. I think that's like very multifactorial. There's a lot of reasons mm-hmm. why that happens. One big thing is minority stress. I do a lot of work educating people on how being in a marginalized community can put people at higher risk for developing eating disorders. Obviously, we don't just see that in the LGBTQ community, but you Mm -hmm. do see it in that community where an eating disorder can turn into a way to help people honestly just cope with having a marginalized identity, which can be obviously a very stressful thing to go through. So I think that's one big thing is that people in that community... Because I'm marginalized, you just tend to turn to various coping mechanisms more often oh. to help deal with that minority stress. Yeah, 100%. It's kind of like, I always think of that like Maslow pyramid of needs and like that need to yes. belong as humans is one of like our primal needs, right? So when totally. you feel like yeah. you don't belong, of course, the eating is so like, hey, <laughs> hello, I can help. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, big one. And then again, what we're seeing from a lot of the research and my own experiences, both being queer and non-binary and having clients who are in the community is a lot of people are still also dealing with gender dysphoria. We see that a lot mm-hmm. with our trans and gender non-conforming people in that community. Mm-hmm. And that really is just that added layer that goes on top of like everything that can already be happening with an eating disorder where somebody can have body dysmorphia, but then on top of that also be experiencing gender dysphoria. And we know that those two can really intermingle and play off of each other, that they're two separate things, but that line can get very blurry sometimes for people. Oh. Oh, a hundred percent. And it's almost like there's like so much like focus on the body and like maybe some disconnection with the body. And then again, like the eating disorder can kind of come play that protective role in some way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's definitely playing that protective role. And then last sort of thing I think that can come up is things like higher chances of being unhoused, higher chances of having food mm-hmm. insecurity, things like that can, of course, also put people at higher risk for developing an eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors. So I think that a lot of people in the LGBTQ community can just have this sort of perfect storm of environmental things, life situations, social things that are all coming together to put them at high risk for developing these things. And we know that obviously eating disorders are biopsychosocial. So there's a lot of factors that can play into somebody developing an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And I think that just with all the different factors that can play into somebody's life, people in the queer community are at higher risk because of that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like all those like risk factors are 
there. And then it's just like an, an added one on top that also includes like a lot of the other risk factors that just, yeah, is we just get more at risk of developing than an eating disorder. Hey, my friend, this podcast episode is brought to you by The Balance Practice, a multidisciplinary team of healthcare providers who specialize in eating disorder care across the province of Ontario here in Canada. If you are ready to recover from your eating disorder and get adequate, inclusive, affirming care, you are going to want to check us out and see if we are the right fit for you. Our team offers nutrition counseling, psychotherapy, meal support, family support, group therapy, and all care coordination to really support you in making strides in your recovery. We are here to collaborate with you and empower you with evidence-based and lived experience-informed knowledge to support you in your recovery. For more information, you can check out our website at www.thebalancepractice.com. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, and I find it so interesting. And you, you said this a couple of times, like there's not a lot of research on it. I don't know if you want to speak on this a lot, but I always like we just finished reading a book and now I, the mind slip. I can't remember the name. I will remember and then post it in the show note when I do. It'll come to you. Uh, it, it, will, it will come to me eventually. Uh, probably tonight at 2 a.m. I'll be like, ah, that was the book. That was it. <laughs> but it talked a lot about how with eating disorder care, most of the research that we have is on thin white cis women. So yeah. like folks in other communities who are actually more at risk. We just don't have a lot, you know, aside from like lived experience and people being able to share and wanting to share. Yeah. And so I think that's where, I mean, I know just as a clinician, that's where a lot of my learning has come from, has come from, again, Mm -hmm. my experience, friends experience, and then also listening and talking to my clients where, because Mm -hmm. I don't have a ton of research to go off of, a lot of it really is just going off of people's lived experience. Yeah. Which is so important. And I think like, anyways, I'm getting on a tangent now, but like, when we talk a lot about that piece of like lived experience and form, I think is as equally important as evidence-based because if the evidence doesn't actually account for the folks who are suffering, (laughs) then like who fucking cares, you know? Exactly. It's sort of like, well, this evidence isn't for everyone anyways. So why are we trying to apply that evidence-based research to like every single population when that's not what it was for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I feel like the system is flawed. <laughs> I feel like we need a little flaws. Yeah. There's a lot of flaws here. Like, what do we do? Um, and I'm curious to hear, like, so when we okay, so one, we know evidence is flaws, not a lot of research, but do you also feel like there may be some folks in the LGBTQ community that are not getting like access to diagnosis? And if so, like what are some of those maybe barriers or reasons why maybe folks are having a more challenge getting access to care or even getting like you know, awareness of maybe their eating disorder? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. I think one big thing is not being able to find affirming care providers. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. We see this for a lot of people that if they cannot find affirming care providers, sometimes they just go without care because they would rather just not go to a doctor than go to a doctor and be misgendered or go to a doctor and have the doctor say super triggering things to them. Yeah. So I think that's a big piece of it is just... Um, 
my clients have such a hard time finding affirming care providers, which is awful to see. And it a lot of times just ends up turning into this battle of like, well, either I find a doctor who doesn't misgender me and is affirming, but maybe isn't the best doctor. Or I find like a really good doctor, but that doctor is not affirming and constantly misgendered. Like they, it's such a hard time finding yeah. that perfect care provider that is knowledgeable and affirming and like understands eating disorders, which is another big thing. So I think there's just, again, yeah. so many barriers that get in yeah. the way of that. Yeah. The pool of healthcare providers gets real small. It's real tiny. But, yeah. Yeah. You're like, all right. So how do I find something like value aligned, educated, understands this? You're like, it's really hard. And it's, I find the piece that can be hard too, is that I often see like eating disorders are an illness that's also like very much rooted into shame. And if we go to a place to access care that kind of increases that shame for us, it's very counterproductive and can actually trigger yeah. more eating disorder symptoms. Yeah, definitely. I think that, I mean, people get shamed by healthcare providers all the time for a variety oh of things, God. which is like one of the most infuriating things for me as an so eating disorder clinician is hearing it come from, I mean, and it's obviously not just the LGBTQ community. We hear it all the time from people who are in larger bodies. You hear it from people who are of different races, like people getting shamed for all sorts of different things, which you're right, can definitely be its own trigger to the eating disorder. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I feel we could have a whole other episode, like shame and healthcare and like what to do about it. But yeah, that's really, really difficult. And I'm really curious in your experience with folks, like, do you find that eating disorders maybe present differently in this community or same representation? Like, is there anything that you see that like different? I think it's both. I think that there's definitely pieces where across the board, it's going to look fairly similar amongst different people that could be like different eating disorder behaviors, where regardless of if somebody's in the queer community or not, that behavior might present similarly for somebody in that community versus somebody not in that community. Again, I think that the biggest difference that I see is both gender dysphoria, and then also sort of origins of the eating disorder, where a lot of my clients in the LGBT BTQ community can sort of pinpoint how their identity has played into the development of their eating disorder, where it might have been like, oh, no, I'm like a teenager who's realizing that I might be gay. And that's freaking me out. Maybe I don't live in a safe space for me to be able to come out. And so then the eating disorder, again, shows up as a protective mechanism for that person. So definitely see a lot of people being able to make those connections of how being in the queer community intersects with the development of an eating disorder. But again, I think that probably for a lot of my clients. And I work with a lot of trans and gender non-conforming clients that gender dysphoria is a big one that people are dealing with. Yeah. And I wonder like if you have any thoughts, you probably do. Like how do you manage when the eating disorder is protective and maybe making someone feel more at home and connected with their body Mm -hmm. when we know that the eating disorder, like, no, we don't want it. Like we're trying to recover from it and it still plays that really important role. I think one thing that I have really only in the past, I would say, year have trying to been educate myself more on is using harm reduction in eating disorder treatment, which yeah. I do feel like is becoming a bigger thing, which I'm really mm-hmm. excited about that we're seeing more education being done on it. We're seeing more clinicians using harm reduction. But I think that yeah. that is something that is super necessary to have conversations with clients about. Like I have that conversation with a lot of my clients of like, let's talk about quality of life goals. What do we want our life to look like that might for some people? people, not for everybody, but for some people look like, well, the eating disorder is not going to go away completely, that some behaviors might still be used. And how instead of mm-hmm. shaming that person for that or stigmatizing that, how do we talk about, well, let's keep you as like physically healthy as possible. 
It's talking about keeping you as safe as possible, but maybe we're at a place right now where getting rid of the eating disorder entirely is not an option. And so how do I as a clinician then somebody, if that is the choice that we are making together as a team of like, yes, we're going to be using harm reduction. Mm, I feel like this is a clip that we need to listen to over and over again. Like this could be the end of the podcast because I think that part is like, yeah, like mic drop, we're done. This this was great. This was great. But it's so important, right? Because I think oftentimes, um, and I don't know if you see this, but in eating disorder care and treatment, I feel like the providers have this like vision of like what recovery needs to look like for all the people and like doing the job and doing the things. But like, when you have that bigger understanding of like where it comes from, why it's being maintained, and maybe the recovery is not as protect, you know, it, it, like it's just like a lot more complex, I think, than what we can realize at times. So it's it's so cool to be able to like see those different options and being able to see like, cool, well, what if living with an our, our eating disorder in a way that is like reducing harm and making sure that we're still able to be here on planet Earth? Mm-hmm. What if that was the way to be able to manage it? You know, and I think it's such yeah. a kind way to look at it. I agree. I agree. And yeah, I think that, I mean, we know that a lot of people who work in the eating disorder field themselves have experienced an eating disorder. And so I think sometimes through no malintent, people get very Mm. stuck and they're like, well, I recovered from an eating disorder. So you can recover from an eating disorder. So you can too. You can do it too, which is like (laughs) nice to be able to have that like, oh, I did it. And so I know what you're going through and I have a similar lived experience with that. But I feel like it can be unhelpful in the like, I am taking my own personal experiences and just sticking them on top of everybody and being like, well, if it worked for me, it'll work for you too. Yeah. That might not be true. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. Do you know uh, Dr. Jenny Wang Hall? Yes. I love Jenny. I love her so much. She came to give us a presentation on like harm reduction and I'm like, re like I have the notes. I'm always like looking back and just like, it's just so interesting how it feels like almost like a new concept, but I'm like, how is this just like not the thing? (laughs) You know, know, why is this not just a standard of care where we have these different approaches and like meet people where they're at and like support them with informed care like it just interesting yeah. I'm going on tangents but I feel like it's just <laughs> so important so 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 important I agree <laughs> yeah um so I'm curious about healthcare providers who maybe are listening to this and I'm like are like maybe like oh cool like first of all yay for harm reduction we're gonna look into that but I'm curious yes. <laughs> like what would you say to other healthcare providers if they are supporting someone who is in recovery in the LGBTQ community like anything that they need to be more aware of? I think one of the biggest things is language. What language am I using around my client? What language am I using even if I'm not with my client, but I'm talking about my client? I think that all of this is really important and it takes training. It takes training and it takes a while to like habituate using certain language. I know that I've made personal language shifts. I think even just small things like, okay, if somebody's coming to me and we're talking about a partner, I'm calling them that person's partner unless that client is using different language. Like if they want to use husband or wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it is, then I'll mirror whatever language that they're using. But I personally try to use as much gendered, non-gendered language as possible when referring to my clients, people in their lives. I think that that's like a step that a lot of people can start taking. Another thing I always do is if I'm meeting somebody new, whether that be a client or other healthcare provider, I introduce myself with my pronouns. If that person feels comfortable using their pronouns and wants to introduce themselves with their pronouns as well, great, amazing. But I think that it just sets that sort of safe space of, hi, I'm Quinn. My pronouns are they, she, 
so that we know that this is a space where we can share our pronouns and have that feel like a safe thing for people to do. So I think that using affirming language, non-gendered language, again, mirroring the language that your clients are using, that that's a step that really any healthcare provider can take. I love everything you said. Okay, I want to dive deeper on this because... Yes, that's what we do here. Why is it important to say your pronouns? Like why? Like how? I just want to unpack this for folks. (laughs) Like I don't think we've ever talked about this on the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't think we've ever addressed it. But like, why is it important to do it? Or why would it be important? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can start just honestly from talking from my own personal experience. So I came out as non-binary later in my life. I came out in my early 30s and I present very femme. And so I always get gendered with feminine pronouns and feminine language when I'm out in public, Mm -hmm. when I'm with other people. But I honestly prefer having they, them pronouns used for me. I prefer more androgynous language being used for me. But obviously, because of the way that I like have gender expression, people kind of jump to more feminine language for me. So it's nice for me to be able to use my pronouns as an example of like, I use they, she pronouns so that people can be like, oh, okay, maybe for Quinn, I will also use they, them pronouns when I'm talking about them or when I'm writing an email to them, things like that can be helpful because again, people might not know that those are the pronouns (laughs) that I use until I explain it. And then for my clients, again, I think that some clients might not feel comfortable sharing their pronouns until somebody else does it. I see a lot of kind of back and forth that can go on both in healthcare circles and outside of healthcare circles of requiring people to tell people their pronouns. I don't think that that's necessarily always the best route to go because some people in the LGBTQ community might not feel safe sharing their preferred pronouns or the pronouns that they're using or if they switch pronouns. And so I think just by sharing your own pronouns, you're both offering that as like a you can take this opportunity to share yours as well if you feel comfortable, but it doesn't put the pressure on somebody to like have to tell you their pronouns mm-hmm. if they don't want to. Yeah, I love that. Like that was just so well explained. Like I feel it's just about like it's almost just like creating that safe space. And I think that's really important. Just that opportunity, especially for like the clients too, to be able to know, like, you know, you can share and if you want to. And like I think it just like opens up that door a little bit. Um, and it also can feel less awkward if they're like they don't have to come up with it and be like, oh, by the yeah. way, by the way, just so you know, because it just kind of like allows <laughs> more of that like conversation to be there naturally. Yeah. And then less inceptions too, which I think is also cool. Yeah, I agree. It's also been really interesting doing telehealth and having things like Zoom where people can put their pronouns in their name, which I love. I love the fact that that's a thing because then again, you don't necessarily have to say it if you don't want to say it, but it can be visually there for people. I've also had some clients who don't tell me that they're using different pronouns, but they put it in their Zoom. And then I get to sort of broach that topic in a gentle way of being like, oh, I've noticed that your pronouns have changed on your Zoom name. Would you like me to start using those pronouns for you? Or do you feel comfortable talking about the pronoun change that like I can initiate that conversation? If that person doesn't necessarily feel comfortable being like, hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm using different pronouns now that they can sort of put it there gently in writing. And then I can start the conversation. Yeah, I I love that so much. Even on Instagram, the fact that you have that there now, if you want to, I'm like, it's just like easier. It doesn't take much work. We just know like, I don't 
don't know. Transparency is always like the best policy, <laughs> like just kind of like letting it be if you want to. I mean, you also don't have to share if you don't want to, but I think as providers to be able to share that space is just, yeah, I feel like it makes it so nice. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I love that. Um, so we talked a little bit about different challenges that folks can have in accessing care. I'm wondering if, you know, someone listening is like, yep, that's me. It's been really hard or, you know, I haven't felt seen or I'm not able to access care or it's just been, you know, more of a challenge. What advice would you give them either like resources that they can look up to or just ways that they can advocate for themselves? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to acknowledge that accessing eating disorder care is already hard. Mm -hmm. Just a blanket statement in general, it can be hard to access. And then when you put on top of that, somebody being in the LGBTQ community, again, it's that added layer of now it might be hard to both one access eating disorder treatment care, but also access affirming eating disorder treatment care, where if we're thinking about, okay, if somebody wants to go to higher level of care, now not only am I thinking about location and insurance and access, but I'm also thinking about, do they take people of my gender identity? I'm thinking about Mm. does the staff know about things like affirming language? Is the staff educated on things like what if I'm on hormone therapy? Does the staff know how that affects me physically and mentally? Things like that. So I I think, again, it's just that added layer of complication that people can run into when they're trying to access affirming treatment for an eating disorder. Mm. A lot of things that I usually encourage people to look into is are there any sort of low cost or free or like specifically affirming safe spaces that have been Mm -hmm. created that you can access. One of the ones that I really love, National Alliance for Eating Disorders has a free LGBTQ group that they run once a week. The providers are all in the community. It is a safe space. And I think it's nice just to have community spaces like that where Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to explain yourself. And the people Mm -hmm. in the group, again, have similar lived experience. So they can Mm -hmm. really bond with you over those things that people understand what it is that you're going through. I also run a weekly group that is specifically LGBTQ people in eating disorder recovery. And then places like Project Heal, who also offer things like scholarships for people in the community if they're having financial difficulties with accessing care. I think that those are some great spaces to look into if somebody's really struggling to one, find community Mm -hmm. and also find treatment that's affirming. Yeah, I love that. And we'll put those links in the show notes, guys. So you can check it out and get all of the information too. I am like such a strong believer in group support in recovery. Like, I feel like I've always kind of liked it. And like this year, I'm just like, how do you do it without it? Like, I just believe so much in that community piece, especially because with the ED and like triggering that sense of belonging and safety that we may have, like being able to belong. And I mean, we want it to be a safe group. We want it to be a supportive group. Like there's all of these factors in place, but recovering in a community aspect makes it, I don't know, not it makes it better per se, but it, I, I do feel it's like super supportive for treatment outcomes. And yeah. I feel like here in North America, we're very like I individual. We're like, you need to recover by yes. yourself and like figure it out and just like push through and use your discipline. And you're like, no, like that's not how it's supposed to be. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I find that really a lot of people in the LGBTQ community already have a big sense of how important community is. Again, I think that's partially just out of 
necessity of like needing to find safe spaces. And so community is already a big thing. And so I think it's already like inherently in there as a value for a lot Mm. of people in the queer community to find communal spaces and to help other people within the community. So I think really leaning into that for eating disorder treatment and care as well. Yeah, it's just so needed. But I I like that. That's so true. I never even thought about that, that it's already like we kind of know that community is important. So like, let's do more of that too. Yeah, add more of that. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. We just like wrote a blog on like the importance of community in healing and eating disorder and even research around like loneliness and how that impacts like our health outcomes and all of these things. And like the power of being surrounded by others as you are going through like hardships or things that are more difficult and how productive that can be for us as humans. Like we always forget that we're social to begin with. Like we're social beings Mm -hmm. that need those connections. Yes, I totally agree. And I think a big thing that can come up for people in the queer community is they might have lost other support systems when they came Mm -hmm. out as queer, that they could have lost family members, they could have lost friends. And so sometimes they're rebuilding social supports for themselves, or they have a lack Mm -hmm. of access to social supports. So wherever we can bring that in for them and give them access to more social supports, I think is always important and always going to be helpful. I love that so, so much. I'm curious if there's anything else that you would want to add around, you know, treatment with the LGBTQ community or any tips, advice for folks who are in the recovery process? Yeah. I mean, I think that one thing, and this is more so for providers, but I think is also important for people in recovery is knowing if you are going to do something like hormone therapy, something like that, or other gender affirming medical care, how that can impact both eating disorder and just impact you physically, like what's going on in your body when Mm -hmm. that is happening. And this is definitely one of those things we were talking about lack of research earlier. I was doing a presentation for some dietetic interns on providing nutrition care for people who are trans. And my gosh, there is just no formal research. Yeah. Like we have some research that's come out, but there really isn't any sort of formal like, oh, this is standard of care or this is like practice guidelines Mm -hmm. that we have on how to treat somebody. Like, are there energy needs changing? Are there protein needs changing? Mm -hmm. Do we need to get different lab markers? Are the lab markers going to be changing? (laughs) All sorts of things like that. And I think for my clients who are going through it, that sometimes their healthcare providers aren't fully educated on that. And then the Mm -hmm. client therefore is not fully educated on that because they don't have anybody on their treatment team being like, Hey, this is something that could be happening because of like being on testosterone or something like that. And so I think both for clinicians own knowledge and then also for clinicians to be able to then educate the clients that they're working with of like, Hey, these are some things that could be happening. This is some things that could be going on in your body or things that could be impacting your recovery because of it. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah, we can talk about that. I'm like, oh, I feel like we just opened a new like box. But like, what are some of those considerations like from the healthcare provider side or even like somebody living with the ED? Like, what do we need to be on the lookout for if we're going through hormonal therapy or? One of the big things that comes up for pretty much all of my clients that end up going on HRT. And I've had clients both who have come to me having been on HRT for years. I have clients who come to me and they've just started HRT. And I've had clients where as they've worked with me, they've decided to start HRT. So I've kind of seen people on different areas of the timeline of starting HRT. I think a big thing, especially for eating disorder recovery is, are there going to be physical changes 
And is that going to feel triggering or is that going to feel affirming because you're on HRT? So some Mm -hmm. of my clients, we might talk about things of like, what if like your body starts shifting, you start gaining weight, you start losing weight. Like, how are we going to feel about that? Is it going to trigger something in the eating disorder? And so really having ongoing conversations with them of like, what physical changes are you noticing in your body? And how is that making you feel? And again, I've heard clients have really like positive experiences of like, oh my gosh, I started HRT and it made like light years of difference. And now the body image thing feels like not a piece at all. And I've had clients where, you know, it's like, it's not a magic pill. It's not gonna fix everything. And so it can be hugely helpful and allow somebody to have more mental space to be able to focus on things like recovery. But I think acknowledging that like, it's not gonna fix everything. And so even if somebody Mm -hmm. starts HRT or they get top surgery or bottom surgery, that they might still be dealing with gender dysphoria or body dysmorphia even after that. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing to like very like client centered in terms of here what could happen and almost like that informed consent piece too of like, here's the Mm -hmm. information we have. Here's what could happen. How does it feel? And we get to kind of check in along the way. Yeah. And then another piece and I talked to all my clients about this is this is really just true for everybody of like your levels of estrogen, progesterone and testosterone in your body put you at higher or lower risk for developing certain like either abnormal lab markers or chronic health conditions. And so people should just be aware that that is a thing that they might have to be more conscious of or get more labs on. An example that I can think of is people who are on testosterone or have higher levels of testosterone usually have higher risk for high cholesterol. And again, not all of my clients were informed of that when they started being put on testosterone. And so then if they develop high cholesterol, they start freaking out and they're like, oh my God, why do I all of a sudden have high cholesterol? Mm. For some of them, that really triggers the eating disorder of like, oh my gosh, now I want to change how I'm eating and what I'm eating because I'm afraid of eating certain foods and that impacting my cholesterol. So I think really just giving them basic education of like, yeah, people who have higher levels of testosterone tend to have a higher risk for having high cholesterol. Obviously, that's not true for everybody, but let's make sure that we're conscious of it. And let's make sure that if that does end up happening, that we're not slipping into the eating disorder as a way to try to fix that problem. Mm, That is so, so important. And like, while that like not being informed of that, you yeah, know, I know. I was like, I'm surprised that not all doctors are like, hey, this is a thing that could happen. Yeah, just so you know, and especially knowing you have an ED and knowing that like health yeah. concerns can become triggering due to the eating disorder. But exactly, you know, what do we know? What do we know? <laughs> Goodness. Oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here today, for sharing all that with me, with the audience today. I think like this was such a great conversation. And I'd love for you to share where can people find you if they want to work with you if they want to learn more about what you do? Good question. So you can find me on my website, which is practiceerosnutrition.com. That has just a lot of, again, basic information on the work that I'm doing. You can also find me on Instagram, which is at practiceerosnutrition with underscores in between the words. You know, I try to put out content relatively consistently depending <laughs> on my schedule is looking, uh, but try to put out content. So that's another place Fair. that you can find me. And then I actually also, I have no idea when this podcast is going to be put up, but I'm going to be doing a webinar series soon. If anybody is interested, it is going to start at the end of September and go into October. And it is on affirming care for adults with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So if that is you or you know somebody who might be interested, that is also a place that you can find me in the near future. That's awesome. And is that open like worldwide or just US? I believe it's open worldwide. That's an excellent question. I might have to ask 
the dietitian who is running it, but I believe it's open worldwide. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me know. And when yes. it does come out, please remind me so I can share everywhere on social media because that's so fucking cool. I've never yes, heard of it. I will share doing... it with you. Yes, please do. So I can like, yes, share all the things and all of the links and everything will be in show notes. So everybody can just go scroll down, click on it, check Quinn out because this is awesome. Also, uh, the website is really nice. I really like the colors. Thank you. Like, oh, this feels like fun. Trying to keep it like, you know, soothing colors, nice light. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, ooh, I feel like a little joy and warm inside. Ooh, good, good. I'm glad that's what you're feeling. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, all of that will be in the show. And then also your group that you run um, weekly, is that worldwide? Yes. So that one actually awesome. is worldwide. Cool. If you need super bills or like insurance coverage, you have to be in the United States to get that. But you can join the group and get that coverage anywhere from within the United States. But yeah, if you don't need insurance coverage and it's only $25 a week, I try to keep it relatively financially affordable for people so people can access it. Awesome. So we'll share that everywhere too. So if you guys want to be part of the group, like again, I'm so big on groups and community. Like I feel it's just such an important part and to have providers who are able to facilitate those safe spaces is a rare thing. Yeah, I know. I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited to be able to do it. I love doing group work. And so I was excited that I could start my own group. (laughs) Yay. I love that for you. Love, love. All right. So now we're going to shift into our fun questions. Hey, hey, I'm just stopping this podcast episode to let you know about our upcoming workshop. And this is perfect because as we're talking about, you know, accessing, and this is perfect because as we are talking about having affirming care in the LGBTQ plus community, we are actually going to be doing a full workshop on this. So if you are interested in learning more about eating disorder treatment and recovery and having an affirmative experience in your care, you're not going to want to miss this. So Manik Robinson is a psychotherapist here at The Balance Practice, and she will be facilitating a low-cost workshop at the end of this month. So on the last Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time, you can join us for this workshop. Again, you're not going to want to miss this. If you're enjoying this podcast episode, you're going to love the workshop. All right, let's get back to the podcast episode. What is your favorite food? Okay, so when I sent this question, I was like, okay, I have to really think about this. Um, I, like, this is the hardest question of the this whole is podcast. The hardest question of them all. Um, I would say that my favorite food is hatch green chili. And it is because I'm originally from Colorado and it is like a staple in Mexican food from Colorado to have hatch green chili. And I think there's maybe one restaurant in New York City that I have found that has it. It is very difficult to find here, which is very upsetting for me. So whenever I go back to Colorado to visit my family, I'm like, at every single meal, give me green chili. Yes. Every single meal, I have to get it in before I return to New York and get get it again. Yeah, so you're like, this is the only thing we are eating yes. this week. Thank you. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, one it for everything. <laughs> I love that. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? I would go with teleportation. Mm. And I will say a part of that really is just the selfishness of I live in New York city again and it takes like an hour and a half to go from queens to brooklyn and if i could just like teleport there instead it saved me so much time and then so much easier to travel you could just like teleport somewhere for a weekend spend some time there so i feel like like just from 
Yeah. You could go to Colorado every night. Exactly. And get green chili. That's it. That's it. (laughs) So that would be my superpower. Yes. I love that. I think that would be mine too. I'm like, I'm thinking about like, I want gelato, Italy. Here I am. Exactly. I I want that. Like, let me just travel all around all the time. Like, that'd be awesome. And what is your favorite way to self care? When I think of self care, I feel like the stereotype of self care is always like, I took a bubble bath, I did a face mask. I like got a massage, which I think are all lovely ways to self-care. But I think as a clinician, after working in the field for a little while, my biggest way to self-care is to set boundaries with myself about working hours and when I am working and when I am not working. Because I think it's really easy to fall into that trap, especially because I work from home of like, I'm checking emails 24-7. I'm always Mm. thinking about work versus having those boundaries with myself of like, nope, from this time to this time or like on the weekends, those times I'm not checking emails consistently. I'm not responding to things. It's sort of like, what can I do for myself so that my life is just my job 24-7? And I love my job, but I think it's healthy for everybody to have some of their own boundaries about how much time they are spending thinking about their job. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. Especially when you, you know, you work for yourself and you're yeah. in private practice and like, there's just so much stuff all the time. So if you have yeah. any tips around that, that you found helpful, I'm all <laughs> okay, ears is a struggle. One thing that I had actually a old employee person that I worked with previously did that I was like, oh my gosh, that's so genius is she had an away message anytime that she wasn't in front of her computer. And so I remember emailing her one time about something at like, I was like 7.30 in the morning and got a response back that was like, hi, I don't start working until like nine o'clock in the morning. I will get to your email at night. And I was like, oh, oh, that's so smart to just immediately have that sent to everybody to be like, thank you for trying to get me, but I'm not going to respond right now. And here's what I will respond to you. That 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 was something that I definitely feel like I should take from her and start using for myself. I love that. You're like, oh, this is a boundary. Cool. Yeah, great. Let me (laughs) let me embody that for myself. Take that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And last question for you. What does balance mean to you? I think that balance has so many meanings. And obviously, when we're talking about working in eating disorders, eating disorder recovery, I feel like I talk about balance all the time with my clients. And it comes up in like balancing food intake, balancing their life, balancing movement. I feel like balance is one of those things that can be applied to just pretty much every single aspect Mm -hmm. in somebody's life. One exercise that I love that my therapist actually had me do, which I will recommend to every everybody is draw a cup for yourself. Just like draw a cup on a piece of paper and then fill up that cup with what things in your life are taking up emotional and mental energy. Could be again, like work, friends, social engagements, time to yourself, whatever it is that you're doing in your life, sort of fill up the cup in percentages of what things are taking up the most amount of mental and emotional space for you. And then draw a second cup and do the same thing, but do it in the way that you want it to look. How would I like my life to be divided? Where would I like my energy to be going? And see if those two cups look the same or see if there's like wildly different things. Like I, for myself, when I was doing that practice, I was like, wow, I don't really set a bump 
amount, like a ton of time for myself, just by myself to do things by myself for myself. And so I started trying to shift things around of not spending so much time just doing things for other people, but setting aside time just to do things for myself. So I would recommend that practice for anybody. I love that. So, so much kind of like the mental health, like pie chart of like yeah, exactly. how much time are we spending on each thing versus how you want it to be. Yes. What would we like yeah. to have? <laughs> yeah. And it's really cool when you do that. Cause I think sometimes we're so busy in the go, to, like go, go, go doing all the things that like, I know when I did that exercise a while back, like I didn't even realize the amount of stuff that was in my cup. Like I was like, oh my right? goodness. Like, oh, yeah. Wow. That is a full like, cup. Yeah. You're like, I'm tired. That's insane. Like, <laughs> obviously look no at No wonder I'm tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really cool. Even just to bring the awareness. And then also like, I really love that piece of like how you want it to be because it kind of brings in that empowerment piece too of like, oh, I, I mm-hmm. have agency on this. Like I do. Yeah. Choose. Yes. Yeah. I always talk with my clients about this concept of radical self-care because again, we have self-care that are like those small things that we do for each, ourselves every single day. But radical self-care is like, I am making life shifts. I am making big changes to try to take care of myself. And I think it can feel really scary to do that for a lot of people. And it can feel like, well, I can't, like I can't give up doing these things. I have to do these things. And really trying to think through like, are there any changes that I can make for myself thinking outside of the box of things that I can do to make sure that I'm radically taking care of myself. I love all that. Thank you so much, Quinn for coming on the podcast. It was so great Thank for all to meet you. To connect. So nice yeah, you everything was so, so great. I hope that everybody loved this podcast episode as much as I did and go down to the show note, click on all their stuff, check them out. I hope that you really enjoyed this podcast episode with Quinn. It was such a good one. All of their information will be in the show notes. So you guys can just scroll down, click and check them out. Also a reminder that if you want to learn more about the LGBTQ plus community and eating disorder care and recovery, check out our workshop that is coming up on the last Friday of this month at 12 p.m. Eastern time with Manik Robinson, one of our amazing psychotherapists who specializes in eating disorder recovery here at the the balance practice. So you can go to the www.thebalancepractice.com forward slash LC workshop and sign up today for $10 to attend this amazing workshop. On that note, my friend, have the best day and I'll catch you next week in the next episode.